This is a podcast about failure. With me, Lola Berry, author, nutritionist, and yoga teacher. Join me as we get to know these guests and learn about how their failures have ultimately shaped their dreams. Welcome to Fearlessly Failing with Lola Berry. G'day, it's Lola Berry here. This next guest is a very dear mate of mine. His name is Jad. He's an awesome naturopath, counsellor, nutritionist, and his whole passion and jam is really about mindful self-compassion. I've known Jad. We figured out we lived on the same street when we were like Oh, he was 12. So he's a few years older than me. So probably since I was like 10, I knew Jad and he used to have blue dreadlocks. The poor bugger, I keep reminding him of it. Anyway, I want you to meet Jad. He's awesome. He's passionate. He's got zero ego and he's so intelligent. And yeah, I think you're going to learn a lot from this one. And it really opens our mind up to embracing failure. Okay. So I'm actually really mindful of the way I talk because I know my voice is really loud. I'm so excited to introduce you to this next person. He's going to kill me for saying this and he's just, his eyes have just gone really wide. But um, uh, Jad is the smartest person I know. Come <laughs> on. I'm, I'm telling the truth here. So we've been mates for quite a few years and I'm, I'm, I'm quite pumped to kind of like unpack that a little bit because I've got memories of you that I'm, I don't know that you've know. Is it to do with picking my nose? No. Okay, good. Why? Did you used to pick your nose Doesn't all the matter. time? Let's not okay. go there. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about that later. Um, but so Jad is a naturopath, a qualified nutritionist, a counsellor, but your, your, I would say your jam is this mindful self-compassion yeah. as, a, as a form of therapy, am I correct? Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I'm most passionate about these days. So I'm so excited. You know the theme of this podcast. I was like, Jad, can you be on my podcast? It's about failure. I'm so effing pumped to have you here. You can swear, by the way. There's no rules. Mm-hmm. But I quickly want to go back to before you were a nutritionist, before you were, a, um, you know, ca- delved into like counselling, act therapy, all these things. My first memory of you is when you had blue dreadlocks. <laughs> And we lived on the same street in 1995? Yeah, yeah, it would have been, yeah, about 95, 96, around that sort of How old would we be then? I was 14, 15, 16 when you were friends with your little my sis. little sister and you were the little little girl from down the street that would um, uh, get out the front of our house and sell tie-dye T-shirts with my little sister. So she was already entrepreneurial at the age <laughs> of about like nine or something like that. And you, I remember, so we'd always go to their place to play and you were in the front room on the right-hand side when you walked in. Yes. You had a pet turtle. I had two pet turtles. My room was like blood-coloured red with like (laughs) grunge band posters everywhere. I was a cliched, you know, miserable, angsty teenager at the time. And you fire twirled? (laughs) 
Recent, recently brought that out again as part of my ongoing midlife crisis. I yeah. heard you tell me about this midlife yeah. crisis. You look so <laughs> handsome, by the way. I need to preface that right now. Oh, we actually um, will talk about like our food addictions and Jad has a little thing for custard tarts. Am I right? I have a thing for a lot of things. We both like sweet though, right? Mm. And he'll be like, oh, no, I've just eaten. Oh, actually, both quite like the new Daryl Lee licorice chocolate. And we both ate a good. whole family bar, it didn't was we? good, yeah. But, see, I'll eat it and put like five kilos on overnight, whereas you'll eat it and still look very handsome and svelte. I might talk about a study on donuts that relates to that later. Yeah. Oh, bring it on. <laughs> so then fast forward to my next memory of you. We worked together at Paran Health Foods and my first shift, I was talking to another staff member, Jevin, who's I think still yeah. your mate, yeah. and I said, ba ba ba, I love biophilia, the healing power of Mother Nature. And someone's ears pricked up and Jad hadn't acknowledged me at this stage of the game. <laughs> he obviously thought he was too smart to engage with me. <laughs> and I was like, actually intimidated by Lola at the time. She had like a, a book out and a YouTube <laughs> thing and I was like, who is this girl that's like, you know, going places in, yeah, in the and nutritional world and stuff. And you turned around though and you're like, did you just say biophilia? And mm. I was like, yes, I did. So anyway, we both nerded out over that and then I turned to him and said, did you did you live in Albert Park? And you're like, yes. And I'm like, did you have a dog called Flynn? <laughs> and you're like, yes. And I'm like, named after Flinders because that's where you used to go on like family holidays. God, you got a good like, memory. And you're like, I'm taking cognitive function stuff at the moment, by the way. I okay. think my memory is quite good. Mm. And I do all the medicinal mushrooms. Anyway, which we can talk about in a sec as well. Anyway, I think I freaked you out in that moment. You did. Well, you also asked if you knew my cousin and if my cousin's listening, I love her dearly, but she's a rat bag. And so I straight away was like, oh, how does this this girl know my cousin and what's the link here? We're talking Marnie here. You didn't even mention her name, but yes. Hi, Marnie. Awesome. Yeah, I'm throwing him. I'm putting throwing. And so I was just right like, away. "How does how does Lola know my what's what's the link here and what's going on?" And and then and and then as it turned out, she, yeah, we we made established that we grew up a few doors down from one another, and she was good friends with my little sister, and they Sorry. used to get up into all sorts of mischief together. Oh, we got caught shoplifting together. Yeah. Toothbrushes, Disney <laughs> toothbrushes, and then hair scrunchies. Yeah, good. See, you've got a great memory too. Yes. That, that a man down an alleyway made you steal. I told the truth, though. I was the one you that You caved ran. in. You <laughs> caved in. So we were all, there was three of us, and another chick called Bobby who was like the ruler oh, of the, the bad pack. <laughs> so we all stole these toothbrushes, I think some tie, more tie-dye for our business, and scrunchies, and all the parents found out, and we were like a man made us do it down an alley, steal kids' Disney toothbrushes, <laughs> lipsticks and whatever. And my mum and auntie who were, were school teachers were just like, right, a man <laughs> made you steal some <laughs> Disney toothbrushes and some scrunchies. And at the time I was just like, oh, my God, my mum's being so mean to these poor kids. You know, they've just been like harassed by a man down the street. And and then Lola caved and burst into tears with her parents and said, we stole them. <laughs> I was such a dip. I was always a goody two-shoes at school. Mm. I do remember that. How, how funny. So my theory is we were always meant to be mates. That's my thing. I think Jad and I were designed to be friends. Yes. And you yeah. haven't been able to really get rid of me, have you, since I left Pran Health Foods, what, five, five years? Five years ago. And I've been there like seven or eight years. You, I remember Jad's like, you should not be getting rid of her. She's <laughs> you were the one person. <laughs> okay, so we've established we're very good mates. So. 
I'm guessing there'll be a few laughs in this podcast. The other thing, the next thing that I want, a serious question, why the hell did you start studying nutrition and naturopathy and what made you want to go down that path? Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there's lots of convoluted reasons. So the, one of the first things that got me interested in, in naturopathy and nutrition and, and that sort of area, which I've, I've talked about a few times with people, is I had, as you mentioned, lots of pets growing up. So I had um, angelfish and turtles and rabbits and guinea pigs and green tree frogs and cats and dogs and all of those sorts of things. And... Um, I wanted to breed angelfish and so I learned lots about fish breeding or, or how you sort of get them into optimal health so that they'll, they'll sort of, you know, have babies. And um, one of the most important things was you had to give them a really varied diet and you had to give them some live food. Like if you fed them like mosquito larvae and and um, worms and things and, and bugs and stuff, they'd be in much more optimal health and they'd get in sort of breeding condition. If you just fed them the standard dry flake food, and didn't look after their environment, you know, give them a nice big tank with plants and stuff to explore, they wouldn't be happy and they wouldn't wouldn't reproduce. And I thought it was really fascinating and I always was like, well, what does that mean for humans? Like what's our optimal environment and what's our optimal diet and what are we supposed to be eating? And How old were you when you were realising that fish and humans are alike? 11 or 12. I mean, That's I was always good. obsessed with nature documentaries as a little kid, so I was kind of like, we are animals. Like I never had, like I always, I used to get very angry when people would make a distinction between humans and animals. And then I went down the whole path of becoming quite a militant vegan for a little while and got into, you know, wanting to be a raw foodist and stuff, which I failed miserably at because Cadbury cream eggs are not a raw food, believe it or not. Another addiction that we both <laughs> share. <laughs> and... um and so through that, I sort of got interested in nutrition and health, also became a vegetarian, and my parents both said to me, we'll support you, but you need to learn about what you need to eat to be healthy. So I was like, well, I'll show them, you know, I'll learn about that sort of stuff. So I started reading books on vegetarianism and, you know, protein combining and all of those sorts of things. It was sort of a, a thing at the time. And got fascinated then by human nutrition and by health in general. Um, and that sort of led me down the path of potentially I wanted to become a vet and work with animals oh, and yeah, nutrition. Oh, yeah, I could see you leading down the vet path. Yeah, possibly would have been a more profitable career choice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and also during my early years and teenage years, I, I suffered from pretty bad anxiety, which at the time I didn't know that's what it was. I just thought there was something kind of intrinsically kind of wrong with me. Um, but also being um, kind of timid and anxious. I didn't like to talk about it. I didn't want anyone to know because I thought there was something wrong with me and so that's shameful and so you hide that. You don't tell people about your problems. See, I always thought you were shy. I always yeah, thought you no, were like very quite shy. shy. I don't remember having like like when all the kids would play, I don't remember you. Like I remember you like the, the cool hair, but like I don't remember ever really like you were kind of like, yeah, reserved. Yeah, kept to myself a lot and, and was more kind of nerdy and reading a lot of books and things or, or hanging out like in my cubby house or whatever away from every I was I was quite shy quite timid and that led to a disposition towards you know anxiety and during my sort of teenage years I also suffered from obsessive compulsive disorder anxiety attacks periods of pretty intense depression um, lots of psychosomatic disorders so irritable bowel syndrome and headaches that were related to anxiety and stress that were sort of exacerbated by that and can so, I just can I ask how like how did the because I've had OCD as well how did that manifest as a in you know, my child? early childhood I used to have to complete certain rituals mm-hmm. um, so and I still do this sometimes when I'm tense I will tense my right 
sort of bicep muscle, then I have to tense my left to balance it out. Of course. And then because the right's gone first, then the left has a has to have its turn of going first. So then I have to tense my left one and then my right one and then that balances that out. But when I'm super anxious, particularly in the past when these symptoms were a lot worse, I could never quite get that balance right and I would compulsively tense and twitch those muscles over and over and over again to the point where sometimes my, my ligament would, would swell up with, with pain. Oh, so we're doing like over 30 times in a go? I could do it a few hundred times. Oh, in, wow. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say you're lucky because it's not overtly obvious when you were doing it, but I, I was like a light switch girl. I was a light switcher as well. And like I have to fold clothes a certain way. I wish I had that tendency. Because <laughs> oh, yeah. you could use it for like neatness, can't yes, you? Yes, yeah. I wish mine and, and my exes have all sort of, why, why can't your OCD be like that being neat and tidy? <laughs> Unfortunately, it's just things have to be done in a certain way and I'd get very distressed if they weren't. I'm well and truly beyond the worst yeah. of that now. But it got to the point at some stages when it was really bad, say if I was driving, I'd need to be doing this muscle tensing and sometimes have to take my hands off the wheel. Like oh, I don't think I've ever told anyone that, but, yeah, it, it could um, it could get quite bad. Is the theory that if you didn't do it, something horrible is about to happen? So I never, technically I guess I have tics as opposed to true obsessive compulsive disorder. So there's the the obsessions are things you think that are, are where something terrible might happen and the compulsion is if I carry out this ritual that will stop the bad thing from happening. Mm-hmm. So I tend to have more just the compulsions. Mm-hmm. Um as a very early child, like I, would, I wouldn't step on a crack because I was worried something bad would happen. But the the thinking behind it sort of disappeared, but the ritualistic sort of behaviours would would continue. So I'd have to do things in a certain way, mm-hmm. turn lights off in a certain way, um, used to have certain bedtime rituals. Stemmed from? Well, it's really hard to say. There's a strong genetic component towards OCD and there's a lot of phobia, anxiety and OCD, in, in particularly in the, my mum's side of the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some perfectionistic traits in my dad's side of the family and that also relates to anxiety and, and OCD. So there was probably a genetic component. Um, who knows? There was probably some stuff going on in, in terms of maybe how I was raised or whatever and I don't want to point blame or fingers no, at anyone. It's not. just, you know, kids at different... But we're both from divor- divorced parents, are we exactly. not? Exactly. Yeah. And certainly at the time of my parents' divorce and leading up to that, that's when a lot of these symptoms hmm. really became magnified. So I was probably internalising a lot of that stress that was around me and not understanding it and so it was manifesting in some of these kind of physical sort of symptoms. And I think when you lay it out like that and it's absolutely not about pointing blame at all, I mean, I think, I mean, I'm not a parent yet but I imagine one day I'll be like, oh, when I have kids I'm sure I'm going to be like, oh, my God, my parents are just people and I'm just a person and sure, like, they're going to do things that are going to have a shit impact on their kids and it's just what they think is the best thing in that time. So... Mm. I think as well, like going through being a child that's gone through divorce, yes, it's a shitty thing for a child to go through because we do blame ourselves Mm, mm. for things that we can't control. Yeah, and we just don't understand them. That that sense of lack of control is stressful in itself as well, especially as a child and that kind of family unit dismantling has a big impact and this is well established in the literature too. So commonplace nowadays we sort of just accept it as it is and think, oh, everybody's parents get divorced and stuff like that. But depending on the age where certain events happen, if you're going through a particular developmental stage in your life, even small stresses can potentially have a big impact if it's at a critical point in your psychological and physical development. So sometimes it can be as 
a little thing like perhaps when, you know, a younger sibling was born and your mum was busy attending to their needs and, and dad was busy with work and, and you were at a particular stage in your development where you were needing a lot of attention yeah, and that wasn't like, given to you, like, that will shape loved. your personality and yeah. your attachment style and the way you relate to people in the future. And none of that's necessarily pathological or a bad thing, but it will shape your tendencies towards strengths and weaknesses and some things you'll do well and some things you'll do less well. And if that's magnified by additional stress, trauma, etc., that can then lead to psychopathology, like problems with anxiety and whatnot. Are the, are the ages the same for everyone, like a seven and age? Is like... there's, well, there's certain sort of milestones, and I'm not a developmental psychologist, so I can't really comment too much on that, but there are certain periods of time where those influences are far more important. So pretty much the whole way through childhood and adolescence, there's every, your brain is being created and, you know, it's being shaped and, and it's very malleable in that time. So things that happen then are much more likely to leave lasting impacts than say things that happen to you in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s. Um, so certainly very, very early life. So before the age of three, you can make big predictions on a child's behaviour in that up till that age and how they're likely to behave in relationships as adults. How fascinating is it's that? It's really though? fascinating. Like, all the emotional out of it, just like look at it from, I guess, almost like a scientific yeah. is the aspect you're coming from right now. Yeah. And then if you throw on top of that like spiritual stuff, like your soul chose to have this life and have the parents that it's had and have the experience that it's had, it's pretty fascinating. Exactly. And it's all, you know, it's a a huge kind of learning curve we have to all go through and, and it involves a lot of, you know, by understanding a lot of this stuff, you then have to bring in a lot of sort of self-forgiveness too because you realise I'm the product of a whole confluence of factors that I had no control over and we all are. So there's, you know, there's there's an element of it where there's free will and choice and there's an element in our lives where we're sort of subject to the wills of things around us, a deterministic sort of universe. So we kind of have to walk that fine line between feeling empowered but also accepting that some things are outside of our control. So you just reminded me of something and I didn't have this in a note to talk about but it, I remember we were working together at Pran Health Food and you were like, you need to have a therapist. I remember you said to me and I was like, uh, no way. And you were like, why not? And I was like, it's a weakness. Mm. It's a failure. Yeah. I would feel shameful if I went to one. I would feel like um, there's something wrong with me. I'm not good enough. And you were like, Lola, you go to you go to yoga every day, you go to the gym, why can't you go to the gym for your brain? Yeah. I remember you said it's like gym for your brain. Exactly. And I think you're speaking so comfortably and openly, and I know that this is your skill set and something you're very passionate about, but about things that would be reasonably uncomfortable for a lot of people, like an adult would probably find it tricky to go, oh, yeah, I had OCD and it crops up when I'm really, really stressed out or under pressure. But the way you speak about it so clearly tells me that you've done the work. Yeah, definitely. And it's it's always a work in progress. Mm-hmm. And 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 you're right. I often say to people when they're considering therapy or they're going through a rough time, and I'm like, well, if you were struggling with your fitness, would you see a personal trainer? And they're like, oh, yeah, I'd consider doing that. That makes sense. And I'm like, well, it's sort of a similar sort of thing. It's a, it's a not a perfect analogy, but if you go to see a personal trainer, one, you've got to show up every week, you've got to do the work, you've got to put in the work outside of the sessions. And when you go there, some days it's going to be blood, sweat and tears. Some days you're not going to have a fun time. Sometimes you're going to come out of that session feeling a bit sore and a bit yes. and a bit like, you know, what am I doing? I'm not getting anywhere with this. A good trainer will encourage you through that, will 
hold space for you to, you know, to do the exercises effectively and appropriately. And we'll do some stretches at the end to make sure that it's all, you know, you're relaxed and contained. And similarly, a good therapist should do the same sort of thing. You'll be exposing yourself to some of the difficult emotional experiences that we all have and the difficult thoughts we sort of have, exploring them and how they impact your life, and then looking at strategies of ways of maybe relating to that in a different way that's going to be more beneficial to you in the long run. But there will be sessions sometimes, you know, you don't always feel good each time oh, see a psychologist yeah. or a therapist. Sometimes you feel like, oh, what the <laughs> hell am I doing this I actually, for? I said to you right before I, I said, I don't know why I've just had a therapy session right before I come here yeah. and do this interview, but I said to my therapist, I was like, I'm loving this growth we're doing. I said, but fuck, I hate it sometimes. Mm. And he just started laughing. And I was like, because I'm so aware that there's this beautiful moment when you realise you're like very okay with being shit along the way. Yes. And you're very comfortable like I really don't care what people think of me nowadays versus like even two years ago. And but, I, yeah, I said to him, I was like, I can feel I'm in this massive growth phase. I was like, but please tell me I'm going to step out of this fucking lake sometimes mm. and, and go, I've done the growth, I've done that phase. And I'm not saying you're ever going to walk out of after because a couple of years of the therapist that you can walk away and go, I'm healed now, but I feel like it's just like you were saying, there's certain phases of your life where you're like, oh, tick, now there's a new life lesson to focus on or there's something new to grow, to grow from. But I think, um, oh, this is why I'm so excited to have you here. Like you're very comfortable and passionate to talk about failure. And I think as well you have inspired me a lot because I'm an A-type personality. Once um, Jay, Jad said to me, you're like a shark. Do you remember saying this Yeah, story? yeah. If you stop swimming, you'll die. Die. Yeah. Yeah. If you stop doing things, <laughs> you'll die. And again, it, back to that therapy thing, I remember I resisted you for quite a while. I resisted like the three closest people to me that like, go get a therapist, go get a therapist, go get a therapist. And, and, and I remember another thing you said to me and you said, if you really want to succeed to the level that you want to succeed, you're going to need one. And so this is where I think people listening to like, I've got all these goals, I've got all these dreams, I'm very ambitious. It's like you'll get to a certain level, but then at some stage you're going to have to do the work, would you say? Definitely. And I think, you know, one of the biggest, uh, in terms of like big goal achievement and all of that sort of thing, a big part of what stops people pushing through is their inner critic you know, that tendency of themselves to put themselves down, to to criticise themselves, self-doubt, self-pity, self-blame, all of this kind of over-identification with our negative attributes. And if you're not in a place safe enough to really turn towards that, understand that and accept that as part of who you are and then move through it, it's going to self-sabotage you. It's, it's always going to trip you up. It's going to sort of stop you from attempting things, trying things. And a lot of this happens sort of somewhat unconsciously as well. Is that you? Well, you have that moment like two weeks later going, oh, fuck, I felt so angry about that thing, but all I really needed was to sit in the feeling or to sit with what was uncomfy or to express my feelings better. Exactly. Like you don't often get it till the after. It's like when you see someone, at, oh, it's that famous thing, you see an ex-boyfriend or something and you're like, why didn't I say that when I saw him? You know, it's like you have those epiphanies down the track and that's where I think therapy helps you to have that skill set. Like I feel like this is probably a sharky thing to say. I feel sharper Mm. when I'm with it. I feel more clarity. I feel sharper. I give less of a shit about what people think and I'm really okay about working on myself and being 
not I want uh, being a failure is the wrong word, although I do love failing and I want to get to that next, but being in the shit and being messy. Like I'm really okay with being yeah. messy now. And that's yeah. I think I would attribute to therapy. The thing I wanted to, I guess, uncover with you is you were saying to me that sometimes you have a fear of not trying something because you may not be good enough at that thing. Yeah. And I think you're not alone. Like I think that would be when you, you just touch on it, when the, your own self-critic or your own self-doubt, like oh, I'm not good enough to do that. How does that, How does that? I guess, manifest or look in your life? Yeah, okay. So. Now comes the uncomfy stuff. <laughs> I guess, I mean, fear of failure is a huge thing for a lot of people and particularly people who tend to have like a perfectionistic kind of streak in them. Mm -hmm. And that was certainly me growing up. I was a very good student. I got really good grades. You're you're like forget emotional intelligence, which I know you're great at. Jad is literally, I don't know what your IQ is. It's actually not that high. Oh, don't ruin this for me. (laughs) He's literally the smartest person. I'm going to digress really quickly. Do you remember when we were working together with our friend Geraldine, mm. and she was talking about being in Africa and these gorilla oh. guys. Can you tell the story? I'm going to make myself sound so so dumb right now. So this woman, Geraldine, who's fantastic, very um, eccentric. eccentric. She's a nurse, naturopath, hypnotherapist. She's done everything. And she was talking about this. She went on this tangent unrelated to the conversation we were having about being in Rhodesia or Zimbabwe in the 70s and she was like, and, and we were on this bus and then we got, um, we had to dive down on the bus because we were being shot at by um, gorillas with machine guns. And me and Lola just started laughing and laughing like, I'm laughing like, how random is this story? Like how relevant was this to this conversation? <laughs> and Lola just kept laughing and laughing and I'm like, oh, oh, hang on. I'm like, she's like, I just... I don't understand. How did the how did the gorillas know how to work machine guns? <laughs> I literally thought I visualized a bus of gorillas with machine guns trying to shoot Geraldine. Yeah, like hairy primates that you know, like Coco the gorilla who did sign language also learned how to use a machine gun. <laughs> and Jad was like, in that moment, he was like, "Oh my god, you thought they were real gorillas." And then I had to learn what a guerrilla army was and, like, <laughs> oh, my goodness. So it clearly would just preface again, Chad is much smarter than I am. But also what is lovely about a situation like that is how quick you are, and, you know, talking about failure, how quick you are to just laugh that off and just be like, oh, well, I didn't know that. Who gives a shit? Whereas especially me earlier in life, if I felt like I'd said something really dumb, I would have been like, you're an idiot, you shouldn't have opened your mouth, why would you say something so stupid and, you know, you're better off just not talking rather than saying something that you don't know anything about. And it would hold me back from, say, asking questions in class. I might be really passionate and interested in something, but because I wasn't sure, I'd be too scared to ask a question. It would make me, um, you know, avoid certain classes where I wasn't, you know, doing so well in. I'd just be like, I don't feel like going to that class or I've got a headache today. Um, Certainly in, you know, primary school and high school, I just wouldn't, if if I felt like I wasn't going to be really good at it, I just wouldn't do it at all. Oh, wow. And so this, and this fear of failure is, been there my whole life and a lot of it's been sort of unconscious so I just wouldn't try things and I'd get highly highly anxious about even the simplest of things like um first time I ever used an ATM 
I machine. Feel like I'm gonna love this, I was yeah. I was too scared to do it because I didn't know how to do it, and I might look like an idiot because I didn't know how to do it. So I just put off ever ever doing it. Um, but you do weird it things now. like you do going it now, to a post you? office because I'd never been to a post office before on my own to like say you know back in the days where you could pay bills and stuff at post office. I just wouldn't do it. I'd default, defer, get someone else to do it. But isn't this just a safety thing? Because, like, even for me, I'm like, I have to write emails from my laptop, not my phone, because what if they go to the ether on my phone and get lost? To this day, I'm still like, my publishers are like, we know you only write emails at night because you need to write them off your laptop. Like, I'm... Yeah. Is that just not a safety thing? Or yeah, I mean, it is. A, I mean, any of these things, and we can talk about sort of fear of failure, what it's really about is normally a fear of shame and a fear of your own response to your perceived failing. So, you know, a lot of it was about other people are going to think that I'm dumb or stupid or incompetent or don't know how to do something. And a lot of this was very unconscious. It was just I couldn't even think about it. It was just I was just afraid, didn't want to do it, wouldn't do it, would put it off, get someone else to do it for me. Um, just on you with, like, the fear of failure and you're going to again kill me for this and the fear of shame, is this why you haven't written a book? No, but we can talk about how that came into it. Yeah. So I did write a manuscript for a book. Yeah. And I... clearly you've got a book in you and I'm sure people listening will be like agreeing in with me on this. Like you're so knowledgeable and passionate. So procrastination is a huge part of fear of failure. Okay. Um, it well, can be. Yeah. Sometimes procrastination is just laziness, but procrastination often is is associated with fear of failure and self-criticism. And so I had written a manuscript, sent it to the, the book publishers who were interested. They said, oh, look, we don't think it's right for us right now. Maybe you could try sending it to some other publishers, but it's just not quite what we were wanting. And and I did then just was like, oh, okay, I give up. Oh, and so you thought you were not good enough. I'm not good enough. At the time, I also I'd just been given another opportunity. I wanted to focus my energy yeah. on that. But there was a part of me still at that time that was just like, Oh, it wasn't good enough. Um, I can't do this. It wasn't perfect enough. Oh, my God. If you knew how many times, like, I remember I got booked for a TV gig and they're like, oh, we've just found out you don't have a child. You no longer fit the brief. Wow. And I was like, what? So I'm being punished because I don't have it because they want to talk about health from an aspect of a mother. Right. And I didn't realise that. Fuck, I, I remember I just binged on a block of lint pistachio chocolate. That was the end of my day and on to it the next day, which is still a bad way to handle failure. But my point is, if you only knew how many times, yeah. especially in the television world, yeah, too fat, too skinny, blonde hair, the wrong look, the wrong this, the wrong top, your boobs are too big, all this shit, like that is very literal things that have been said. Yeah. And that was shocking to me working with Lola for the few years I did and then staying good friends with her. And also revelatory for me to realise like to... To, and I don't like the word successful, but like to be really successful in life, to really achieve some of your big dreams and goals, you have to, you will fail. You will fall on your face a number of times. You'll, you'll fall down more times than you'll stand up. And you've got to be able to pick yourself up and keep going. And I was always inspired by Lola as a friend because she kept doing that, even though she, and she, you know, heard some horrible, horrible things. Like there's so many things that oh. people said to you, and I'm just like, I would not be okay with, like, I'm so morally repulsed by that kind of language that that's just not okay. But she'd sort of take a knock and then be like, okay, right, eyes on the prize, still got to keep going. And so I learned a bit from that that 
what, you know, why do I take, you know, one knockback? And then I'm like, okay, well, that's the end of that. I can't do that again. So it was, it was, it's been in the last kind of 10 years really that I've been unpacking a lot of that sort of stuff and working on that. And that's led me down, well, it's, you know, in part directed where my career's sort of gone well, and more and of a focus on mental health and counseling. And but also, you're a very successful in clinic. We are in your clinic at the moment. Yeah, that's true. Merge Health. Yeah. Sorry, Hills, Melbourne. Not my clinic where I work, but yes. Sorry. <laughs> See how he doesn't like talk himself up? I'd be like, yes, this is my clinic. <laughs> the only reason it's not called Lola Berries because it's in a name change phase. <laughs> But can I say one thing on the failure thing, how your perception of me is successful? I've never seen myself as successful. And I don't know if that's a self-doubt, low self-worth thing, but I haven't lost sleep over not seeing myself as successful. I've also not compared myself to other people doing the same thing as me. Mm. I'll see people doing things and think they're fake and be like, oh, fuck, another dingo. Like definitely I'll have that moment. But And I saw Gary Vee speak. Do you know Gary Vee? No. He's like a motivational entrepreneurial guy, extremely aggressive in his nature of spreading his message. Like he's like, you got a dream, fucking do it. Mm. No excuses. Go to an old people's home, go and look at regret and faces and then go and focus on your dream. Move back with your parents, save money. Like it's very, I love it though, of course, mm. as you know, my nature has got an aggressive side to mm-hmm. the way I do things. Mm-hmm. Not in a bad way, guys, just in a, I go quite hard when I try to achieve a goal, mm. right? And so I, and I, when I sat in the audience to watch Gary Vee speak, it was like 80% male and like because it's so his nature is like. More yang. So yang. I was, saying, so I was like I kept saying aggressive, but he's very yang. Mm. And he said the most successful people in the world love to fail and that was the first time where I really resonated with him and I was like I love it. If you asked me what the, six, the biggest successes of my career are, I'd be like, oh, when I bought a diet plan out and it offended all these people and I hurt heaps of people but I – and I regret hurting people, but I learned that no one really had my back. Mm. I learned that I was a dollar sign to people that I thought I had friendships with, stuff like that. Mm. And, you know, like contracts got frozen and, and and things like that. And and the thing that blew my socks off the most was other health influencers was using my negative press to build themselves up. Mm. And I was like, you motherfuckers, like no one's got your back. And I remember in that moment I learned it pretty young, like I was still in my 20s and I was like, fuck, if I really want to achieve something, I need to do it on my own. Like, and not not in, not like meaning that you can't work with people to achieve goals, but know that most people give more of a shit about themselves than, than you generally and that you have to have your own back. So now I'm like, bring on the failure. I've got my own back. And I know I'm a pretty good person at the bottom of the, like when all's done and dusted, I'm a good soul. Like I give a shit about people and I give a shit about a good message. So I think like if that's kind of like you've got that, I guess, baseline, mm. then you can build from that. You can fail from that because you can always come back and go regroup. Let's let's figure out if do I need to apologise for this thing. Do, you know, I don't know if that's a weird way of saying it, but the the roundabout way of what I did just say is like celebrate the failures. Yeah. Like yeah. really and look forward to fucking up. Which is I think and for a lot of people just hearing that would be terrifying. For me that would be a terrifying kind of concept. It was funny just before we started recording I was grabbing a um, coffee next door and saw the, the director of the clinic, Steph, who I work with, and chatted quickly about the theme of the podcast and failure and stuff. And she's like, oh, my God, I love failure. I fail so many times a day. And, you know, she's a real go-getter, entrepreneurial, dynamic sort of personality. And it's been fascinating for me exploring these concepts to see how big a trait that is in people who really sort of push their lives to the max is that they're just like failure is just feedback. 
You know, failure yeah. is just part of the process of, of learning. Whereas I think, and this, this might be worthwhile time to talk about the concept of shame, is that yeah. if you've got a severe fear of failure, shame comes into it, this fear that you're going to be rejected, that you're going to be, um, you know, that the people aren't going to love you, that people are going to think you're hopeless, a loser, an idiot, all of those sorts of things. And um, it might be worth talking about the difference between, say, shame and guilt. Oh, I was about, thank you. What is the difference? Because I, I reckon I don't feel shame because, like, I've had nutritionists walk up to me and say, you're a disgrace to the nutrition industry. And I'm like, oh, thanks for the fee. Like, I'm. Because of what she wore. Wore, yeah. Mind you. Yeah, you remember that? Yeah, oh, I was. Yeah. I was. I used to dress like Cindy Lauper. So I had a big bow in my hair, wet Converse on TV. And um, she's like, how can anyone take you seriously by what you wear? And that didn't, like, in the moment, sure, I felt like a failure. I felt shameful, but but now that doesn't, I'm like, oh, well, usually when someone makes you feel shit or I guess puts their judgment onto you, that's a very bad English way of saying it, but like judges you, it's often a reflection of their own crap anyway. I know my own stuff is eating disorder and body dysmorphia. So if I see someone really like skinny and quite underweight, I'm like, hot damn. They look great. Like I'll judge mm. them in a good or bad way straight away. Mm. And that's I know it's a reflection of all my own shit. Like this, literally this morning I was doing Muay Thai and I was like, your thighs look so big, Lola. Now I'm a reasonably small human being, so I'm very aware that's still my shit. Mm. And I think shame, if you're afraid of shame, that's I don't know, I don't know if it's self-judgment, but guilt is something I haven't mastered yet. Mm. If I'm really scared of letting people down. Mm. Mm. Are, they, are the two linked? The two are linked. So... I just sort of, actually, I'll come back to that. So there's sort of three kind of things, guilt, remorse, and shame. Yeah. Guilt is when we sort of fail to meet certain kind of expectations of what's morally or culturally sort of appropriate. So we've kind of done the wrong thing. Okay. So that's something that, that we're guilty of. Remorse is you feel the guilt about doing something wrong and you want to rectify the situation. Yeah, okay. So you're recognizing the guilt, you want to do something about it. So guilt is I've done something wrong. Shame is I've done something wrong, therefore I am wrong. Therefore Uh. I am a bad person. So we personalise it. It's not about what we've done. It's about us as a whole personality that I am somehow, I've failed, therefore I am a failure. I've hurt someone, therefore I'm an evil person. I've done something stupid, therefore I'm a stupid person. So we we convert just a, an action into a totality of who we are. Is that a kind of selfish thing to do? Interesting you say that because one of the things we do often is we over-identify with our negative experiences, which is a very human thing to do as well. So we become very enmeshed with this idea. So in a way it's kind of sort of selfish and not selfish in a way of being self-centred mm. but selfish in the way of we're not recognising that we're part of the greater human mm. experience, that Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody fails. Everybody does stupid things from time to time. Everybody is in some way less than someone else. That's something that they do. So a huge part of how I've kind of recovered from a lot of internalised shame has been this concept of self-compassion. And self-compassion involves a sense of what we call common humanity, of recognising that I am human and it is human to suffer I'm not alone in my suffering. So we don't feel pity for ourselves when we experience suffering because we recognise this is part of the gig of being human, that there are times in life where 
I'll fail, I'll feel miserable, I'll feel upset, I'll feel depressed, I'll be rejected, I'll be dumped, I'll be this, I'll be that, I'll make mistakes, I'll make poor choices. And instead of thinking, oh, I'm a terrible person, because of that we recognise, look, something terrible has happened and that's part of being human. What can I learn from this to move on? Or how can I look after myself in this moment so I can recover from this? Can I ask a personal question? It's a, this is a very selfish personal question. So you look after my boyfriend. He's very open about that you're, I think my boyfriend has a bit of a man crush on you as well, Matt, <laughs> when you're editing this. It's true, he does. But um, whenever we spend the night together in the morning, he won't get out of bed until we do the mindful meditation that you've set him as his homework. And sometimes, to be honest, I want to punch you because I am an A-type person. I'm like, I could be running right now. Mm-hmm. I could be running. I could be making coffee. I could be doing 15 emails. And I'm sitting there and, and the voice is literally like, look after yourself. Like it's like and put your hand on where you think. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is just like. And one day we did it and I said to Matt, it's like, how do you feel? And I'm like, I just want to go binge right now because I've just gone, it's okay, go eat the cupcake. Like I've listened to this soft and whereas my mentality is like, just get it done and do it. And so my question to you is like, and and on the other hand, Matt, my boyfriend would call it a game changer. He's completely responded. His anxiety he feels like is so much more manageable. He knows how to take a moment for himself now and he feels like, it, I guess, much calmer as a result. How do A-type people that find trouble in being self-compassionate, whereas I'd be like, lesson learnt, boom, on to the next one. Like, Which, which is, can be an element of being compassionate to the self. So there's sort of two different angles to self-compassion. There is the, the yin and the yang. There's the yin element, which is um, supportive, soothing, nurturing, attending, caring, Lola's face is grimacing at the moment, <laughs> so we know that there's some issues there. <laughs> then there's the yang side of self-compassion, which is motivating, providing, and yeah. protecting. So both of those elements come into play. There is times where we need to motivate ourselves, protect ourselves, um, provide for ourselves, push ourselves, and then there's times where we need to just be with our pain, nurture our pain, soothe our pain, um, uh, and do Is that all of those sitting sorts in of the things. discomfort? That would be sitting in the discomfort. So the discomfort for you in this example might be the discomfort of just being present. Yeah. <laughs> Cheeky bugger. I saw that. He literally waited for that to land. <laughs> and and it's true. Like I can even see some days it lands and it's a bit like what you were saying about the going back to the therapist like a trainer. Like some days it feels great. And um and even Matt at the end of each time each day that I've done it in the morning, he's like, Have you noticed you're a little bit less agitated on the days <laughs> that we meditate? And I'm like, Yeah, 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 let's just make dinner. Like I'm very I'm I'm almost more masculine in that sense. Like um, I, but, and I would suspect in what a lot of more men have as a misgiving or fear about self-compassion, and and this is this is where you might be coming from, is that if I'm not pushing, then I'll permit myself to do anything. If I'm not constantly driving, 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 then I'm going to completely drop my hands off the wheel and let the car smash into the it's wall. It's the all or nothing mentality. All or correct. nothing mentality. Yes. And a good example we use in the self-compassion course I teach, and this is straight from the text, it's not my quote, is the example of a parent whose child is just um, getting ready for dinner and the child says, Mummy, I want ice cream for dinner. 
The mother's not going to say in a compassionate way, okay, darling, whatever you want, you can have ice cream for dinner. The compassionate thing that can be still soft, soothing, calming, nurturing is like, oh, it's really nice to eat ice cream. It's a really enjoyable experience, but it's something we do occasionally. It's not something we do every day. What's important now is we eat food that nourishes us and, you know, sometimes we start to enjoy that food as well. So we can wait and have some ice cream after dinner or on a special occasion. So it's not about permissiveness. It's not about just open slather. It's about wanting what's best for you in the long term. A good way of differentiating between the attitude of self-compassion. Let me just look up my notes here. So is it kind of like bringing it back to the big picture as opposed to getting caught up in the small... It is about looking at the bigger picture and it's about wanting what's best for yourself rather than looking at yourself like I'm not good enough, therefore I should do this. It's I'm good enough as I am but I want what's best for myself in the long term. Yeah, like that. Or I want, you know, I want to um, uh, make my life even better in some kind of way as opposed to coming from this sort of deficiency angle of like not good enough imperfect, a failure, if I don't do this and other people are, are not going to see me as being worthy, it's the attitude that is that is different. It's wanting what's best for yourself. So giving yourself a break can be a very compassionate exercise, but also encouraging yourself to keep going can be a very compassionate thing. If the attitude is coming from a place of wanting what's best for you in the long term, loving yourself in the process as opposed to you're not good enough as you are. If that makes sense. Yes, totally, totally. So not beating yourself up along the way. Exactly. Easier said than done, though, my friend, hence why we need people like you in our lives. (laughs) And do you still, on that note, do you still run your courses? Absolutely, yeah, So is that like a six-week thing? It's eight weeks. It goes, it's a very intensive course. Like people who want to do it have to be really committed to it. Like Mm -hmm. it's a life-changing course, and I don't say that lightly. I've done loads of personal development stuff over the years and you and actually have courses you've done like dream work and all stuff, sorts of different and retreats and stuff shamanic, and like sweat lodge sweat stuff, lodges, yeah. like all sorts of stuff and and some of it's been amazing some of it's been a bit out there this has been the That's biggest what we bombed life-changing over the hippie stuff don't exactly <laughs> <laughs> this has been the biggest life-changing thing for me so i'll be running it um in you know the last term of the school year so that's i think September, October, or something. It starts. Yeah. Anyway, you can look at look I'm me up try on Facebook, and whatever. And you would love it. Yeah, it's it's. I reckon everyone could benefit from it. I think as a as a culture, we sort of don't know how to sort of look after ourselves through our own suffering, and it's about being able to to turn towards the suffering you're experiencing and respond to it in a different way instead of the automatic way of beating ourselves up or focusing on helping other people or self-soothing in unhealthy ways. So there's other ways we can soothe our pain and discomfort that may be more beneficial in the long term. self-medicating drugs, alcohol, sex, food. Donut study. Oh, bring it, bring it, bring it. (laughs) So this is one I just read about today, which is really interesting, and I haven't written notes on it, so let me see if I can remember it probably. It wasn't a big study, so let's not get too carried away with it. But it was a group of women who were dieting, and they they gave the women the option of having a donut, and a lot of the women felt really guilty afterwards. And some of the women were taught how to respond to that guilt in a self-compassionate way. Then later in that day or later in some sort of time period, they got given a whole bunch of lollies, some candy to taste, and they were in the experiment they were told it was part of a taste-testing market research. And what they found was the women who guilted themselves the most about eating the donut 
were far more likely then to binge on the lollies at the next setting, whereas the people who were taught to respond to that donut eating guilt with some self-compassion and care, actually they still tried some of the lollies, but they didn't overindulge. They actually had a completely different response to that sort of nutrition. Hence being present, mindful. Exactly, yeah. and not sort of beating themselves up about it where they then felt like, well, I've failed at this now, I'm going to keep failing at anything I try, so I just give up and I just indulge and, and that sort of thing. Mm. So um, I thought that was an interesting thing to observe that just in just a short-term sort of intervention like that, it can make a big difference to how we might behave in response to something. I read a, I, I heard an interview, do you know the comedian Jonah Hill? No. He's on Wolf of Wall, do you know Wolf of Wall Street with Leonardo DiCaprio? I know of it. So he's the other main guy. Yeah. He's a very funny comedian and apparently he was on set and he was on a um, cu- cupcake diet and he would eat one cupcake a day and that's it. And I've heard I had an old hairdresser that was on the hot cross bun diet, one hot cross bun a day, and I'm like, guys, that is not, and I think we do take it to these limits. Like even as you're telling, you know how when I was talking about the failing and the successes and you were like, I'm getting uncomfortable, like as you're describing the donut study, I'm like, I mean, if they were, depends what the lollies were. If they were Chicos, <laughs> I'd eat the whole bag. But if they were Redskins, I wouldn't even touch it. So, I mean, my brain was off on Lola it. and I both have a tendency to like our sugary snacks, but yeah. it's weird how we have complete opposite tastes because like I, I could go a Redskin, but a Chico, I didn't even know people ate those. Chicos? Yeah. Well, it's like chocolate jelly beans, jelly babies. Yeah, no. I'm a chocolate girl though. But every now and then we cross over. We do occasionally cross over, yeah. Like normally like so I walk into Pran Health and I'm like, Jad, what's good and what's new? And then I'm like, why am I asking you? Our taste buds are the opposite. <laughs> um, I, I, The thing that got me really hooked on when I was researching you and this concept of mindful self-compassion is that you can act because I and I the mistake I made as well when I thought I, when I did my meditation course I was like ah oh, I'm going to be more wafy and softer which I fight I'm like I don't want to be soft I want to be a mm. go getter and I'm always pushing towards something but when I read like about what mindful self compassion can bring it was this concept of being more resilient to stress. Mm-hmm more motivated to achieve goals, mm-hmm. improve relationships and connection to true purpose. And I was like, oh, sign me up for all of the above mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they're things that to me I associate with like a, a better version of life. Like they're all things that we're aspiring to. So I think it's almost like by doing these more nurturing things, whether it be seeing a therapist, whether it be learning about mindfulness or meditation or all these kind of like what would feel more yin things or gentler things mm. that actually bring, I guess, almost like more determination, more drive, yeah. more. Yeah, and that's the very interesting yeah. aspect of this, a lot of the research now into self-compassion as a personality trait and also a trait that we can develop is that the interesting thing is that self-compassionate people are, uh, aren't any less likely to set high standards for themselves. In fact, sometimes they set slightly higher standards for themselves. But what they do do is that when they fail along the way, which we inevitably do, they're less likely to beat themselves up about it and they pick themselves up and keep going. So people who set very high standards but also have very high rates of self-criticism, which is sort of the opposite of self-compassion, they tend to throw in the towel as soon as they hit one bump in the road road. because they're so intensely afraid of the hard time that they give themselves, which is exactly where I was coming from for many years until I started seeing, you know, counsellors and therapists and then eventually discovered mindfulness and self-compassion training. 
I feel like as well, like knowing you for so long and I don't, like we don't need to talk too much about this, but like um, your experience with mental health has been like quite young. So you were very aware that you had anxiety or um, what did you call some like IBS symptoms as a result mm. of nervousness and things like mm-hmm. that. What's that mm-hmm. called? Psychos- Psychosomatic. Oh, I like that word. Mm. That's what it means. So like. Well, somatization is the, the term for when 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 our in or our psychological distress manifests as physical symptoms. Unfortunately, people mistake that into thinking that the physical symptoms are imaginary. The physical symptoms are real. They are really there, but they're often caused by psychological stress. Yeah. So there's an important distinction because sometimes people hear that IBS has a psychosomatic element and they're like, people are saying it's all in my head. It's not all in my head. It's real. And it's like 100% it's real. Yeah. And certainly there's going to be physiological impacts like the food you eat, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. But your nervous system plays a profound role because our minds are part of our bodies. We need to stop thinking as the mind is being separate. Yeah. It's a ridiculous concept. The mind is a biological part of who we are we just experience it as this separate thing and isn't it like so highly linked to our gut as well like massively, no massively. it makes total sense that if yeah. you're nervous you're gonna poo your pants exactly the nervous system talks directly with the gut and the gut talks directly with the central nervous system there's a bi-directional flow of information and and both affects one another hugely so um and and like this is kind of like a bit uh, darker but you're you have experienced like someone from your past that's committed suicide mm. and would put trigger warning on this, but, like, you were pretty young. That would have had some kind of impact on you, correct? Huge, huge. So at the time where I was sort of starting naturopathy and, and had already been sort of experiencing a lot of severe anxiety and panic attacks and, and depression, et cetera, my ex, um, who was ex at the time but still was very good friends with, killed himself due to a mental illness, and... I then plunged into a period of intense despair, depression. Because you were young. Um, How old were you? 21. That's tiny. Yeah. So had, you know, a lot of what what in the literature would be called complicated grief, so I wasn't sort of processing the grief properly um, due to various different factors. And and that led to some pretty serious depression Mm -hmm. and some shame and guilt. Like in terms of fear of failure, I felt like, oh, but I was, you know, studying health and stuff at the time. I wish I could have helped him or I wish I could have referred him on to better services. I wish I could have gotten him on to, you know, to see this nutritional practitioner or whatever. So there was still this kind of regret and, and shame that I should have done more and therefore I've failed in some way. And that's very common when people experience any death, but particularly suicide, is there's a lot of survivor guilt. So the people who are left behind uh, yeah, feel like, yeah, yeah. I wish I could have done more. And just like the guilt and shame we were talking about before, I wish I could have done more, I wish I didn't do this, can turn into, well, therefore I'm, I'm, I'm a bad person because I didn't. Uh, so, you especially know, at 21, it would be hard to separate yourself from exactly, those initial. You know, you're still, your brain's still developing. And I was a young 21-year-old. Like I still, you know, I was sort of really figuring myself out. So that's when I started looking into, I started getting some counselling. I started recognising, actually, I think I'm a bit fucked in the head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, do you know what I think we've all had moments in our life? Like the reality is every human has gone through shit on some level, mm. whether it be as hardcore as what we just spoke about with you, mm. whether it be an eating disorder, whether it be you've said you've had panic attacks. I mean, panic attacks, I had my first one at the start of this year. I thought I was having a heart attack. Yeah. I shit you not. And I'm yeah. a nutritionist. I should have known, oh, shit, you're having a panic attack. Don't freak out. I was holding myself against a wall because I thought I was going to fall mm. down. They're and terrifying. I, oh. Panic attacks are, and they're, they're literally panic is, you know, terror. And 
yeah, the first the first few ones I had, I would get what's called disassociation, yeah. which is often a common symptom of trauma. I've never been able to identify any major trauma in my upbringing, but I have a lot of symptoms of, of yeah. sort of trauma, which I've worked on over the years. And my symptoms was that I felt separate from my body. I felt like I wasn't inhabiting um, my body, that, that my body felt kind of foreign to be in and didn't sort of almost make sense. Like certain movements felt like that my hands were moving at a different time to what my brain thought they were moving. It was very, very disturbing. Yeah. So I became pretty convinced that I was starting to suffer from some sort of psychotic illness, mm-hmm. you know, like a schizophrenia or bipolar. And that's when finally I started getting some help and also started making big changes with my diet and lifestyle too. So the stuff that I was learning through studying to become a naturopath, I started implementing more heavily, mm-hmm. noticing some changes there, then started working with a um, first a psychologist and then started seeing a counsellor who I saw for many years who was incredibly helpful at getting me to understand what I was going through understanding all the triggers that were, you know, creating these sort of states within me, also getting me to understand some of the beliefs I had about myself that were then impacting on my ability to, you know, move forward in life and do things and this sense of fear of failure as well that if I, I can't do that because I that's just not something I could do. So a good example was at the time I was working in some health food stores in the city and I'd been offered a management position and and I was like, well, I, I can't do that. I'm not a leader. I'm not an assertive enough uh-huh. person. I can't tell. I was working with these big bodybuilder guys who were, some of them were quite intimidating and stuff. And, I'm, and I was younger than a lot of them. I'm like, oh, I can't be in charge of them. You know, well, you know, they'll think I'm just an idiot. They'll, they'll, they're not going to take me seriously. And it was through that process of working with this therapist, we sort of unpack some of those beliefs. And, and through therapy, you can do little experiments with yourself. Okay, well, maybe this week just try asking, you know, that person to you know, put away the stock a bit quicker or whatever the case might have been that it was. And I feel I would, like you'd be good at this now. You manage Oh, I have no problem now. Yeah, I was <laughs> going to say my experience of the jar, I mean. <laughs> then, And then I also, as you were describing those things about asking, I mean, that's that self, like relating it to yourself, I was like, oh, I could totally put someone in their place. Yes. But then I have a little bit more bitchiness in me than, say, you. Well, and the, assertive. the, the, assertiveness and, and you know your own boundaries. Like I also, I would have no, I had no fear at that time about asserting myself in terms of the knowledge I had. I would, yeah. you know, if, I, if I'm at a seminar or whatever, I'll put my hand up and ask a difficult question of the person oh, who might be hosting the so seminar. Sorry. It doesn't bother me at all. By the time I got around to doing my second degree in counselling, I was the cliched mature age student. Like I'm up the front asking questions, sharing <laughs> anecdotes, couldn't give a fuck. Like I'm here to learn. Um, but in, in those situations, I had to face that fear of failure that, you know, I, I was like, well, unless I'm like the best manager and getting the best like store results and stuff like that and all stuff I actually didn't give a shit about either. Like I didn't want to be the best manager. I wanted to be a really great practitioner. I was just managing a health food store at the time because I needed to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. So unpacking all of that and realizing you can just do something, Jad, and just be average at it. And that's totally okay. Because you are a human being and some things you're going to be average at. So unpacking that perfectionism and stuff was a big part of me facing fear of of failure in that context. And I also think it's okay to keep your big picture goal and then be doing little things along the way that may not be your end goal but they're helping you pay the bills. I'm very pro. I remember I got an audition in LA and I was like, shit, I can't pay for the flights. And so my friend had a cleaning business. So I'd literally leave TV. I was just about to mention that. Yeah, full face makeup, backpack on. And then there was a few of us that were working in this cleaning company and we'd send photos of the worst pubes we'd find into toilet bowls. Wow. Like, like so. But then I think I'm lucky that I, I love that I've had that because yeah. I, 
I don't think I'll ever get get to a stage where I get too big for my I just don't I think also having a therapist makes you very clear about like being very aware of where your ego is at. Um, one more thing, I know we're getting close to really close to time, but I want to ask one more thing, and I think we've probably both experienced it. And I think there is a misconception that health practitioners are perfect. Yeah. Like perfectly healthy. Like, and the first thing I do when I get up on stage, I'm like, guys, I fuck up my eating. Mm-hmm. Like I can polish off a giant caramel koala, which is better than the mini ones, no probs, mm. and maybe three more after that. Like, I know that sounds like a really unhealthy thing, but, like, the reality is we all fuck up and mm. we all stuff up and we're not perfect. Or I can have days where, although I'm working on my mental health, where I'm really shit at my mental health looking mm. after it. And mm. and I think there's this movement, and I think social media and Instagram make it worse, which is half the reason why this podcast is about failure. Mm. There is this weird misconception that people in the health industry are seemingly have a perfect diet, have perfect yeah. mental health, have yeah. got their shit together. Do they? A hundred percent no. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> not at all. And we're all guilty of it and it is hard to come away with because people also want to look at your social media and get sort of inspiration. So it's hard to sometimes also be completely honest because you kind of want to show some of the good things that you're doing and there's nothing wrong with that. It's the same as on our personal social media on our Facebook and stuff. We're showing all the holiday snaps. I'm not taking a selfie of me, you know, laying in bed one day feeling really depressed and sorry for myself. Um, Some people do do that, you know. (laughs) Well, Insta is generally a highlight reel. That's what gets the likes even though they've just taken the likes away in Australia. But that's what gets the good engagement. And I understand that. But I think a highlight reel only, like only showing a highlight reel can be detrimental to I think mental health on like as as a consumer of that information because it becomes very hard to relate to because you're like, do these people never have a bad day? Do these people never mm. eat anything other than lettuce? Mm. Like, you know, mm. like I think it makes it extremely hard to just only show this kind of like fake, perfect, yeah, perfect teeth, veneers kind of, kind of world. Of it's of like yeah. if only you knew they had little peggies underneath those perfect veneers. Yeah. Do you know what they have to do to put veneers on? Do you know what I'm talking about when I say veneers? Yeah. They file your tooth down to a peg, like a little toothpick. Yeah, wow. Sorry, I don't know why I said <laughs> that. I was talking to my best mate, Andrea, do you know, my mate <laughs> yeah, on the yeah. Gold Coast, and she, I was like, she's like, have you thought about veneers? And I was like, not really. I had braces as a kid. And she's like, I was thinking about it until I found out about the pegs. <laughs> And I was like, what are the pegs? And she's like, oh, I'm Googling it. And she's showing me these photos. Like, you, your actual tooth has to get filed down to about a third of its size. Size, that's a very bad size. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting talking about all this sort of stuff and the impact of social media where we are seeing these highlight reels of people's lives and imagining that that's what their lives are all about when it's completely not. And we sort of see people in peak condition and not all of the build-up to getting there or the times where they've not been in that, that state. Then it's also worth talking about in the 70s and 80s, there was this big push for self-esteem training through schools and whatnot. There was this big emphasis that if people have healthy self-esteem, that's linked to things like less risk of depression, more mm-hmm. optimism, um, uh, better achievement at jobs and, and whatnot. However, self-esteem training had an unintended consequence of increasing traits of narcissism. Oh. So self-esteem rests a lot on a belief about what we're good at. And what we're good at is normally in relationship to others, so it's a comparative state. It's about, oh, yeah. oh well, I'm the best at this. And I remember in high school times we'd be like, 
we'd as a bonding exercise in year seven or whatever, be like, what are you the best at or what are you really good at? Oh, wow. And I'd be like, I can wiggle my ears. Oh, my goodness, he can. He just did it in real life. You know, be jealous. (laughs) Um, And... (laughs) And the basis of that still is this comparative sort of thing. And the thing, in a world with billions of people, you're never going to be the best. There's always going to be someone yeah. who's going to be better at you at a million different things. So self-esteem is like really hinged on maintaining this idea that I'm really good at this and that I'm better at someone than that and I'm successful at this. And it has this unintended consequences of increasing narcissistic tendencies, these sorts of um, you know, feeling like you know, you're isolated from everyone else and uniquely gifted and better when you're not. And also huge amount of self-criticism and anxiety about failure. Well, if I if I if I lose this um, you know, career title and I step down a notch because I'm, no I'm too I'm no longer good, even though this career is killing me and I'm too stressed out and whatnot. So the combination of the new world of social media, this self-esteem training has created this sort of train wreck where we've got this huge amount of anxiety, depression. And people constantly comparing to themselves and not even understanding how to relate to themselves in a way that's just about them. And is that at an all-time high at the moment? It like, is, yeah. yeah. So narcissism as a personality trait has increased in the community, um, but possibly not just as a direct result of self-esteem training, of mm-hmm. course. It's multitude mm-hmm. of factors that might have contributed towards that. And the interesting thing that self, self-compassion as a personality trait, which can be developed also, is associated with all of the same positives of self-esteem training, less risk of depression, greater resilience, better ability to stick to goals, um, improve work performance, better relationships, relationships. etc. Mm-hmm. However, it does not correlate with the trait of narcissism because an important part of self-compassion is recognising our common humanity, recognising mm-hmm. I'm a human too, I mm-hmm. fail at times as well. Other people, I could be them as well if circumstances were different. Mm-hmm. It recognises the shared links that we all have and that there's a lot of circumstances beyond our control that create the state that we're in and the state another person is in. Mm. And and then rather than relating to our failures as I'm not good enough, it's, oh, I'm suffering right now. How can I help myself in that moment of suffering? So we lift ourselves up rather than putting ourselves down. down. It feels a lot more holistic. It is, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot more holistic. And I guess we, we've, we've gone through a, you know, a neoliberal sort of philosophy that's What's created. What's neoliberal? I won't explain it because I won't explain it properly, okay. but we've gone through this very individualistic kind of culture mm-hmm. and this sort of this belief that anyone can be the best at anything and if you just try hard enough, you'll succeed in life, which is true to a degree. You've got to be passionate. You've got to be purposeful. You've got to, you know, utilise, you know, grab opportunities. But no, not everyone's going to be a fucking astronaut. Not everyone's going to be an Olympic athlete. There's going to be things that will limit you along the way, and that's okay. There's nothing actually wrong with that. And, you know, society and all sorts of other influences will influence where you kind of get at. And, and relating to yourself in a way that's not comparing yourself to the global average, but instead comparing yourself to the fact that I'm a human being, what's good for me, what's going to make my life meaningful, purposeful, enjoyable, what's going to help me connect to others, what's going to make me able to cope with life's ups and downs is a much healthier way of relating to, you know, purpose and drive and and whatnot. And I think also there's a word in yoga called dharma, to live purpose, Mm -hmm. and I think I always think that like, and you can see like a lot of people don't live to purpose because it's scary and the fear of failure Mm -hmm. and safe Mm -hmm. and I should do what my parents think I should do and all those kind of things. But I think if we can get this height, like this 
this kind of like mindful, present, self-worth, self-compassion, self-love, all of this kind of right, then you're going to start marching to the beat of your own drum in a non-narcissistic way, mm. hopefully. Mm. Mm. I remember you told me once the the order in which the people are most self-confident and straight women are at the bottom of that list. I think the top was straight males, then came lesbians, then came gay yeah. males. And then came straight women. Straight women. I remember, do you remember you telling me that? Yeah. So there was some studies on on that to do with self-esteem. It was to do with. Pretty fascinating. Which is interesting because it's about rating yourself against other people. And, you know, we won't get into the politics of it no. all, but we do live in a world that has historically been patriarchal, yeah. straight oh. focus, heteronormative. All of those sorts of factors play a big role in shaping us as people. And then if we know that our self-beliefs also then predict our likelihood at success in certain things, if we're starting off with an ingrained self-belief based on the group from which we come from, that that could be limiting. Again, where therapy comes into it and any kind of self-development stuff, when we can start to recognise some of these beliefs and patterns we have, we can also make different choices in relationship to that. We can also forgive ourselves for not being ahead. Oh, actually, I started off a little bit behind the rest of the, the team in the rat race, so it's going to take me a while to get further and I might not ever reach them. But the focus is then on your own inner prog- progress rather than on where I am in relationship to others along a sort of, sort of social status scale and stuff. Oh, yeah, you gotta, you got you to gotta run your own race. Mm. My last thing is what... What do you want to leave people with? Like what is your nugget? What is your, like say someone's just like fuck in the shit at the moment and, you know, feels a little bit maybe helpless and not in a, just just in that kind of like, it's that, you know, when you get stuck in that like, you know, that melancholy yeah. like stuck. So I guess what I've really discovered in the last few years is the, if there's any sort of concept of a legacy that I think I want to leave, it's that compassion is a superpower and it has a potential to save the world. Oh, I love that. And I think if you're struggling in, in a moment, the first thing you, you need to do is first turn toward it. Try not to run away from it. Recognise how am I struggling right now? What is my experience of this struggle? And gently labelling that, being honest with yourself, actually right now I've hit rock bottom or actually right now Things are not like I want them to be and I'm hurting. So that's mindfulness, turning towards. Sitting in the shit. Sitting in the shit, turning towards it and just acknowledging the reality of it, not in a self-pitying way but in an honest appraisal. Actually, things are really tough right now. Then bringing in a sense of common humanity. Okay, it's human to suffer at times. I'm actually connected to other people around the world right now who are suffering just like me. I'm not alone. I'm also not special because I'm suffering. There's not something uniquely bad about me. It's not shameful for me to be suffering. I'm not unique in that sense. Other people suffer just like me. So common humanity. Then the most important little icing on the cake, some self-compassion. If someone else was suffering just like you in that moment, what would you say to them? What tone of voice would you use? What physical gestures might you offer them? If someone who loved about you very much saw you were suffering in that moment, What words would they use? What tone of voice would they use? What physical gestures would they offer you? Get that felt sense of what it feels like to offer compassion to someone else, to receive compassion from someone who cares about you, and then see if you can offer that to yourself. Give yourself some kind words. 
give yourself a little rub on the shoulder or even a little squeeze or, you know, a rub on the heart or something like that. Because you talked last time about the power of touch, didn't you? Exactly, yeah. And that's a a huge part of self-compassion training is exploring physical touch and how that can be soothing and it it doesn't work for everyone depending on your, your sort of history and stuff. Um, and tone of voice. Often when we sort of, we recognize oh, I'm down in the dumps, I'm feeling bad, I should motivate myself. I'll oh, get up, you know, get up, you lazy sod. You know, you should just be doing something lazy better. Sod. Yeah. You just aged yourself <laughs> then, my friend. Get up, you lazy sod. <laughs> Versus like, hey, you're, you're struggling right now. Like maybe yeah. if you get out there and just get some fresh air, you'll feel a bit better. You know, maybe just just try just getting out of bed and making yourself a cup of tea and just, you know, it's, it's the tone of voice is just as important as the words you're using. Is there any moment where you're like, uh, you know, when you're in a funk, what you've just kind of talked us through, but I think also for me going, I'm not necessarily going to feel like this in three days' time. Yeah. Like when you're in it, you're like, oh, my God, it's the end of the world. I'm going to feel horrible and live off caramel koalas for the rest of my life. Like the way you are in that moment is you're feeling something you know, you're feeling like crap, but that doesn't mean that that's going to be the rest of your life. You exactly. know what I mean? That is just And that's, a that's a, an important component of the self-compassion practice is mindfulness is acknowledging here's the present moment, mm-hmm. but it forms part of a whole bunch of other factors that led up to that moment and that are going to lead out of that moment. Everything changes. Nothing is permanent. Nothing mm-hmm. stays the same. So recognising that this is a feeling right now and if I stay with this feeling even for a few seconds, it's going to change in intensity. It might build in intensity, get worse, it might drop off in intensity. Other feelings might come into play. I might suddenly be distracted by a feeling of needing to go to the toilet or feeling hungry. Like when we stay present with it, we stop getting into this storyline that says I'm going to be like this forever. I'm going to feel like a failure forever. I'm going to feel fat forever. I'm going to feel like a loser forever. We start recognising actually this is just a feeling. It's Mm. just a transient phenomena that I'm experiencing Stay with it for a bit. Remind ourselves that it's human to feel that, that life involves ups and downs. In fact, quite a lot of downs, and that's okay. Yeah. Um, and then building that sense of common humanity, reminding ourselves we're human for having that and offering ourselves whatever kindness we need in that moment. And the kindness might just be like, you know what, you're having a really hard day. I think you do need to just stay at home and take care of yourself. I think you do need to call a friend. I think you do need to book in with a therapist. It's time. Mm. That can be a really caring thing to do. Or it could be the motivating yang kind of factor like you need to protect yourself against the dickheads in your life that are, you know, impacting on you in a negative way. Or you need to motivate yourself to get up and do something different. Or you need to... um what is it provide? Oh, well, you need to provide yourself with something that's important. You know, you need to fuel yourself with better food or you need to, um, you know, you need to get a better job or whatever it is. You need to change your situation. That's the, the yang side of compassion. Do you know what my trick is? Mm-hmm. Every time I'm like, oh, I just need to, ch- I'll watch, um, bloopers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've done it for years. Wow. So I'll go home and I'll watch like Will Farrell bloopers or like someone that I love bloopers. One, it shows me they're human. Two, it's hilarious and normally they laugh at themselves. Yeah. And it's so much fun to watch other humans laugh in and, and I guess enjoy. And it normally will snap, it'll be enough to kind of like snap me out of it. And, I, and also because I love filming and acting and things like that, I'm watching someone live their truth that I and their dra- dharma, which for me I can associate with, oh, that's something I want to do one day. Mm-hmm. And so I find that really inspiring and then that kind of pulls me out of that little funk. And I don't know if it's like a... A coping mechanism, but it's always been quite nice. Or I watch a Steve Irwin doco, like mm, these things mm. that to me I associate. I associate with 
authentic, unapologetic passion. I yes. love that. Yeah. And I think that's kind of something I bring. And so I, <clears throat> when I see that in others, I'm very inspired. Yeah. Well, it's a perfect example of you're reminding yourself of your common humanity. You're sort of recognising, yeah. oh, here's someone really successful and they're doing all these bloopers. They make mistakes too. Yeah. So it's okay if I make mistakes. And yeah. it's actually mistakes are kind of funny in the scheme of things. Like they're surprising because we're going ahead thinking we're doing the right thing and then, bang, reality smacks you in the face. And, you know, it's just like funniest home videos when, you you know, some of the water skiing and then yeah. they flip over and hit into a wall. Like, hilarious. <laughs> so hilarious. So hilarious. You have just uh, blown me away and it's been such an honour to have you on this podcast. I actually think that you could totally have your own mind, mindfulness and compassion podcast one day. Talk to Matt about that. <laughs> um, or like, Fear of failure, fear of failure, yeah. thinking in my head. <laughs> but also, yeah, but and that, that was my last thing. Just, I know I keep saying this is my last thing. My, I just could talk to you all day. What is your dharma? I know you're living what you love right now, but where is Jad in five years' time? And I know this freaks out when I ask his, and he's like, eyes have widened. Whereas I, like, love this question. So I want, like, if nothing else mattered, like, if if... If, if you could do anything and be anywhere or, like, and, and I know you love your beautiful pooches and all that, it's not mm. about being somewhere else, but, like, if you had, there was no chance, like, one of my favourite words is numbalaya, which is an Indigenous Australian word that means to live free of fear. Mm. I talk about it a lot. My therapist taught me that word. And what would you do if you were living in that sense of numbalaya? Uh, well, I mean, I'm going through a huge soul-searching period at the moment because I've recently gone through a huge breakup and going through a bit of a, you know, the cliched sort of midlife crisis, really re-evaluating things. He's very young, by the way. So. <laughs> Is I, I, there's two things. The, the passion I want to experience in the next five years would be I want to travel a lot more. So mm-hmm. that's that sort of on, that's a massive agenda. How can I manufacture a life where I can do a lot more traveling? In terms of like, career and, and personal sort of legacy, it is about teaching the skills of compassion and mindfulness. And, and you know you can do that anywhere you are, Jed. This is you true. can travel the world you know, with that. I could that. be running like an online program or something. Yeah. Uh, teaching workshops and stuff I, I absolutely love every time I teach a class or work with a client on these things, even if I'm having a terrible day, I don't want to get out of bed, I really don't feel like working today, bang, as soon as I click in with someone, I'm in that moment, my passion's lit up and I, I'm, I'm and I'm enjoying it. So. I want more moments like that, more moments of teaching these sorts of skills, talking about it, you know, like podcasts like this get me so excited. Mm. Similar to Lola, I could talk about this shit all day long. <laughs> um, and But, yeah, I also want to travel and see the world a lot more and that's something I think fear has stopped me from doing and that's something I really want to move through is that, is that you know, recognising that it doesn't – fear is just a feeling. It doesn't stop you actually from doing anything and, and fear comes along for the journey with a lot of the things you do in life and that's okay. You've got to be friends with fear. And failure. I love that. Be friends with fear and failure. That is the perfect ending to this podcast. You're awesome. Thank you so much for having me. You're awesome as well. I've learned so much about failure. What a compliment. I've learned so much about failure. I've learned so much about picking myself up when I've fallen down from. from I just can't wait. So we've been friends, like close friends now, I'd say, what, 10 years? I'm 33. I started, would have started working at about 23. Well, we we refriended at Paran, so there's seven years. Was that seven? Okay. So I look forward for the next, like, 20 years to watch Mm -hmm. our journeys unfold. You're a legend. Um, Yeah, make friends with fear and failure.
All right. Big love. Thank and you, it's, And it's okay if that lesson takes a while to learn. I'm still learning that lesson in oh, a big way. same. <laughs> when you say fear, I'm just like, oh, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Oh, skydiving or like I've skydived and swam with whale sharks and I remember whale sharks, you've got to swim in 300-metre deep water and I and you just jump off the back of a boat in the Maldives, like off the grid. I remember my friend Andrea filmed at the moment and the chick's like, jump, jump now because you've got to chase the whale sharks but you can't get too close because the propellers of the boat are quite dangerous for the whale shark's fins. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to get close enough, jump off the boat and then swim for your life to get close to the whale shark. And I remember she's like, she's some German chick, and she was like, jump, jump, jump. I so aggressive too and I was like, Andrea's got on film. I'm like, holy fuck. And then I just jump and swim and like swallow so much water. And I just think in that moment, nothing else mattered except for seeing these majestic creatures and shitting myself at the same time. Do things that get you outside your comfort zone. Mm. Feel that fear. It is so empowering as well. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Make friends with fear and failure. Jad, you're friggin' amazing. And yeah, I just can't wait to see what's next for you. Big love. Thanks, heaps.